Today on Grub Stakers, we are recording an episode about the Ryman family and their Holocaust connections. And, well, when we talk about the Holocaust, uh, Sean gets real happy, and we're happy he's happy. So, uh, listen up. First they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. Berlusconi flatly denies that any mafia money helped him to get a start in business. I have, I've always had a thing for black people. I like black people. I'm telling you, these stories are funnier than, than the jokes you can tell. And I said, what the fuck is a brain scientist? I was like, that's not a real job. Tell me the truth. But anyway. In Hello, welcome back to Grub Stakers, the podcast about billionaires. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. I'm here. I'm joined by my friends. Steve Jeffries. Yogi Polywell. Andy Palmer. And this week, episode 60, I'm so excited because it is finally our first episode of Grub Stakers about German billionaires. All right, that's right. <laughs> yes, and I just wanted to ask you all what you think about when you hear the term German billionaires. <sighs> I mean, the people that own David Hasselhoff, I think, comes to mind. I think they certainly are there. What do you guys think? Elevators that <laughs> take people to the floor they want mm-hmm, to go to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. It is true. Like, I do see German names when I get on escalators a lot. <laughs> I'm not sure what they did. Which part of Operation Paperclip that was <laughs> that had them come here and set up all our elevators and escalators. I think they did it in, dis, in spite of Operation Paperclip, or else those would be American-branded <laughs> elevators. Well, this episode is brought, brought to you by Otis. <laughs> or the escalator uh, designers were not part of the uh, intellectual backbone of the Reich. <laughs> it brought people up and down in many ways. But um, this week we are specifically talking about the Ryman family in Germany, the second richest family in Germany. Right. And you might have seen um, a news article this week. Sandy. Oh, okay. So, uh, so you know, I thought I would uh, um, uh, w- warm up our, our Germans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know they they like their uh, '80s because uh, that was the <laughs> that was a heyday. The yeah, that was the that was the last time that they were really able to uh, confine the Euro trash <laughs> where they belong. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if, like, you know, ev- everyone you associate with a trailer park was kept in a cage. Uh, well, that's how. And you want to comfort our German listeners right now, Andy? Yeah, no, I definitely shouldn't have said that. Um, so I'm just going to transition into a song to just lull them into uh, the good old days. Um, yeah, here we go. Hast du etwa sein für mich? Dann singe ich ein Lied für dich vor. Kapitel, erstes Buch der Produktionen des Kapitals. Erster Abschnitt, Vera und Geld. Erstes Kapitel, die Vera. Eins, die zwei Faktoren der Vera, der Gebrauchswert und Wert. Der Reichtum der Gesellschaften, im welchen kapitalistische Produktweise herrscht, erscheint als eine ungeheure Warnsammlung. Die einzelne Vera als seine Elementarform und zur Ungeschunken beginnt daher mit der Analyse der Vera. Okay, we get it. <laughs> I mean, that, that riff does bang, Sean. You have to admit that. It is nice. Yeah, I mean, Andy has decent guitar skills. I'll admit that. Oh, I was talking about that. Just this riff in general, baby. Here's what I'll say. 
An advantage of doing one episode a week as to two is this gag is funny over the course of a month. <laughs> Andy reading Capital has at least two more episodes of it being funny. Maybe three. Yesterday, I also ding 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 Okay, Andy, shut it down. Shut it the fuck down. Trying to be fucking Hendrix, singing while you play. <laughs> Very few people can sing while now, they Andy, play. Now, Andy, I will accept this bit as long as you burn your guitar now. <laughs> Singer-songwriter, Andy. <laughs> We've got our own Dave right. Hill here, ladies and gentlemen. Andy, Andy was here to soothe our German listeners for uh, four ignorant Americans making the same goddamn With jokes. the American cover uh, key of, uh, of the, their Lufthansa. song, yeah. yeah. From the movie Eurotrip. <laughs> but the German audience might need to be soothed because when they hear Americans talking about Germans, I mean, what do Americans think about? It's the fucking Nazis. It's oh. the only movies we think about. It's the only whatever. <laughs> but I wanted, to tell, I wanted to tell you all and the listeners why I'm excited about today's episode because perhaps you listen and you uh, wonder... You, uh read a little uh, book of protocols. It was very enlightening. <laughs> Guys, 60 episodes in, I think we want to redo our analysis. Oh, no. We had to give you 60 hours of billionaire content so Sean could finally fulfill his vice, which is talking about Nazis for an hour. I was gone last week, and then it's like you guys have to keep pretending I'm in Mexico <laughs> because you don't want to admit that I've just like read the protocols and mm-hmm. gone seriously like, off the deep end. This episode is going to be the pressure release valve for all of Sean's Nazism. Sean was well, at, at, at shitposting class with Weave, and he came back, and he's like, okay, I learned some things about shitposting, but I learned a lot of things about the place of the white man in the world. <laughs> Well, that's something that I wanted to say because you, the listener, I don't know if, how, if you've listened to 60, 59 episodes, you might have already figured this out about me, but maybe you were wondering, what does Sean P. McCarthy do after the episode is done and he wants to go home and relax? What does he do? And the answer is, I bring up Wikipedia, I go to the Nazis, and I keep clicking links. But at what point do you <laughs> stop jerking off, though? That's really, that's really the question. Now. And the thing about Wikipedia articles about the Nazis, even the ones you've already read, after like a year or two, you forget. Sure. So you can go back through. And the problem is, history is interesting, but all of history is boring compared to the Nazis. <laughs> Like the Holy Roman maybe, Empire. Maybe to you, Sean. Maybe yeah, you, no, you're, no, no. you are into the period where white people were the worst, but <laughs> some of us brown folk like other periods, Oh, dude, too. check this out. Check this out. Yeah. Holy Roman Empire, neither Holy Roman nor an empire. Ooh. <laughs> national Socialist, neither national nor socialist. Wow. Well, I'm pretty sure well, they were national. I, it depends on your definition of national. That's I mean, they're like, more race-focused like than a, uh, national boundary-focused. Like a Hillary Clinton fucking argument against the Nazis. They say they care about <laughs> Germans, but it doesn't look like they care about Germans at all. <laughs> Germany is already great. Well, did you hear this? Okay, we're already off the rails, and this Hell is our yeah. second time recording. Rhyme but, like, episode. Uh, I, uh, while I was learning about uh, the Nazis, there was the Reichstag fire uh, debate mm-hmm. where... Um, Hitler uh, was introducing, what was it, the Reichstag fire decree. Yeah, the emergency decree. The emergency decree that was going to strip the German parliament of all its powers uh, and basically just kick out all the communists and all the social democrats. And the social democrats, (laughs) if you don't know... uh, if you take out the word social, they it, it's pretty like a much a one-to-one <laughs> mapping to modern Democrats. So I'm like, 
but I was uh, I didn't realize that when I was reading this this book on the the Nazis, uh, the rise of the Nazis, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so um, they're like, oh, the head of the Social Democrats, he gave a speech to try to save Nazi Germany. And I was like, you know what? I got to read this speech. So I look it up, and it, the speech starts with, I maintain that Germany had was not responsible for the outbreak of the great war, like just immediately going on the defensive right, <laughs> about, right. World, about one, world war one yeah. while Hitler's on the verge of Seizing turning power. Germany into a dictatorship. And and that's actually a good transition to where I want to start this because again, so this is about the uh, German brought, uh, uh, Sean brought a whole Nazi book. I did bring a whole Nazi book. I read this book uh, a while ago, wages of destruction by Adam Tuzzi, uh, twos. Uh, but so if you're interested, it's about the economy of Nazi Germany. It's, it's pretty fascinating if you go home and read Wikipedia articles about Nazis every day. And jerk off. Yes. Don't forget about the jerking off part, Sean. So the Ryman family, again, the subject, if you can't figure it out, we are talking about the Ryman family this week. And you may or may not have seen kind of news articles that was essentially the Ryman family. Uh, they're the heirs to this chemical fortune in Germany, but they just... Okay, the, the, the headlines you saw were, Krispy uh, Kreme people are Nazis. Yes, that is <laughs> that is the one-sentence Google News pop-up yeah, you got. Right. But the, if you got and then it, you did right. a tweet about it and forgot about it. Yes. The, um, the family that owns Krispy Kremes, they are uh, heirs to this uh, chemical fortune in Germany, but significantly enough... Um, the uh, the father and grandfather of this clan uh, collaborated with Nazi Germany, and that's that's what we're kind of going to talk to. Now, you use the word clan. What what what's the first letter of that <laughs> word there? Krispy Kreme. Yeah, the Krispy Kreme clan. <laughs> they did create a club in the UK called the Krispy Kreme Club with three Ks, and they had to apologize for that a few weeks later. <laughs> Damn. Who would who would have thought that uh, Germans would be so insensitive <laughs> on the topic of race, and and so in this episode we'll kind of go through you know the Ryman family, second richest family in Germany, what they actually did in the war, right. how they got their money, these kinds of things. But I wanted to just start with what Andy was talking about, which is kind of how Hitler took over, but also how all of German business was so entwined with the Nazi regime. And then kind of after the war, and particularly in Western Germany, a lot of people were just either the scientists were taking an Operation Paperclip mm-hmm. or just the businesses were kind of allowed to get a slap on the wrist and walk away from their participation in the Holocaust because they had to set it up to, to fight Eastern communism, you know? I just want to say, by the way, for the record, I don't actually think that Eastern Germans are trailer trash. <laughs> I think we might have cut that already, but thank okay. you. <laughs> um, can we, we explain Operation Paperclip for anyone that doesn't know? Right. So, yeah. so uh, the uh, allies after the war uh, were looking for uh, basically a way of keeping their papers from falling all over the place. And um, they... <laughs> But Operation Paperclip, after the war, they took a lot of particularly rocket scientists, but also engineers um, from Germany to the United States and generally just kind of like wiped away their uh, participation in uh, concentration camp labor, the Holocaust, all these things. Uh, particularly Werner von Braun is the most famous who worked on the Apollo program for the United States to help us la- put they a could, man on the moon. I guess they couldn't figure out shooting fire in one direction to go <laughs> in another direction. That was that was a little too tricky for the uh, American engineers. But so where I wanted to start was from this book, The Wages of Destruction. And what happens is um, in Germany in 1933, Hitler is appointed chancellor. 
He is the the Nazis are the largest uh, party in the Reichstag. They don't have a majority, but they are the largest party. So it's Hit- a good party. <laughs> Hitler is appointed chancellor, and so from this book on uh, uh, Monday, February twentieth, nineteen thirty three. There's a meeting called... Oh, and if you want a good backdrop on this, I recommend uh, the Star Wars prequel trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a meeting called um, uh, with uh, Hermann Goering, uh, the Hitler's head of, uh, I believe, the Reichsbank at the time, his chief economist, again, named Haljamar Schout, mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, Adolf Hitler. Uh, also Who's there... there? Yeah, also there were um, the leaders of German industry, uh, such as the second-in-command of IG Farben, the largest chemical company, um, the chairman of the Reich Industrial Association, the um, uh, CEO of uh, Veringet Stellwerk, the world's second-largest steel firm. (coughs) Let's get our German expert to pronounce these names correctly. Oh, Veringtika Stellwerke. Sean, you bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it was worth the pause. Uh, but so, Just you know. Hold the book to me when you get to one of those. <laughs> but so, basically, these leaders of German industry, there were, were several, there were prominent representatives of every major, almost every major German industrial uh, corporation there at this meeting. Um, and then just kind of quoting uh, Hitler kept them waiting for a while, but eventually. Uh, he shows up. If the businessmen had expected a discussion of the specifics of economic policy, they were to be disappointed. Hitler instead launched into a general survey of the political uh, situation. The experience of the last 14 years had shown that, quote, private enterprise cannot be maintained in the age of democracy. Business was founded, above all, on the principle of personality and individual leadership. Democracy and liberalism led inevitably to social democracy and communism. After 14 years of degeneration, the moment had now come to resolve the fatal divisions within the German body politic. Hitler would show no mercy towards his enemies on the left. It was time to, quote, crush the other side completely. The next phase in the struggle would begin after the elections of March 5th. If the Nazis were able to gain another 33 seats in the Reichstag, then the actions against the communists would be covered by, quote, constitutional means. But, quote, regardless of the outcome, there will be no retreat. If the election does not decide, the decision must be brought about even by other means. And so... So what part of that sentence did you come in? Because that's really... (laughs) (laughs) The point is... Hitler gets these leaders from German industry together, and he says to them very specifically, we are going to crush the communists, we are going to crush the social democrats, because democracy is incompatible with private business. Mm -hmm. He leaves the meeting. (laughs) (laughs) He leaves the meeting, and then Haljamar Schout and um, Hermann Goering. uh, Hjalmar. Yes, they they take over, and they essentially say, hey, we need an election fund for for the last elections that the last fair elections that are held in Nazi Germany in March. And, uh, basically IG Farben gives about 400,000 Reichsmarks. Uh, Deutsche Bank is there. They give 200,000 Reichsmarks. Uh, the association of the mining industry, another 400,000 Reichsmarks, uh, Berlin. Do you know how much money that is in today's terms? Uh, I'm not sure. It's, mm. I'm sure it's, it's all about five cents. Inflated to shit. <laughs> should, we, should we go through it? No. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the point is, these uh, are, these are Reichsmarks. Uh, yes. Okay. So at the time, um, Let's see if you uh, like five modern dollars mm. are worth about uh, a pickup truck full of Reichsmarks. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I have some economic data here if sure. you want. Sure. So from 1932 through 1939, the average... In 1933, it was about four pickup trucks. The average uh, net change in gross national product was about 10%. So no. 10% per year increase. But yeah, I mean... Pretty crazy, right? <laughs> so what you're saying is that, uh, you know, there are some good things about... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it turns out when you have like slave, you slave labor <laughs> and also wartime full economy, then yeah, you could do some pretty amazing things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I went into this book about the Nazi economy really skeptical. But <laughs> you come out the other side and you see nine percent GDP growth <laughs> per year, and you're like, "Well, hell, maybe we need some Lebensraum." <laughs> but the point of that anecdote was essentially to say. Le- yes, was essentially to say, you know, I mentioned, Laban. I yeah. mentioned Deutsche Bank. Sean is saying love space. <laughs> well, <laughs> need, in many so ways, much love space. he does love space, though. <laughs> so, the you know, I mentioned Deutsche Deutsche Bank. There gave you know they two- thought about pursuing a hug based economy. <laughs> yeah, and then they went in a different direction. <laughs> that was Strasser. <laughs> you know what? No. Yeah. <laughs> I mentioned Deutsche Bank there. There's actually a competing retaliation. There's the Night of the Long Knives, and uh, they actually got to that before the, the opponents got <laughs> to the Night of the Long Hugs. <laughs> close battle, though. Close battle. Yeah. I mentioned Deutsche Bank, and this is why, why I brought this up, is essentially when we talk about the Ryman family, they are a small part of the larger picture of German business, both during and after World War II. So you mentioned Deutsche Bank. Why is Deutsche Bank the major German bank in the world today? Hmm, well, it's because when the Nazis took power, they forced all of the Jewish banks in Germany to essentially, at gunpoint, do fire sale prices on their assets. So the Jewish banks in Germany were forced to sell their assets at far below market value to Deutsche Bank as well as other banks. So, And then Deutsche Bank continues this capital on after the war. Right. Uh, Volkswagen used slave labor. Hugo Boss made the uh, uniforms for the Nazis. Uh, they use slave labor. Um, uh, uh, Mercedes, uh, it, f- famously enough, Mercedes is the guy who designed the Tiger Actually, tank. Not Mercedes. Yeah, uh, beautiful tank. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> had Parktronic and everything. <laughs> the, People don't talk about the heated seats see, in the tank. You can still see the uh, luxury tanks driving around <laughs> Manhattan today. Uh, and uh, uh, and what else? Ig Farben, of course, is today Bayer. And not only did they, you know, dis- uh, uh, do the um, fucking uh, uh, Zyklon B that was used in the gas chambers at Auschwitz. Whoa, whoa, whoa. They- Bayer's a bad company. <laughs> yeah, but they also set up. If you go to, uh, you can't even visit Auschwitz three. But Auschwitz three was attached to Auschwitz, and it was a labor camp for Ig Farben and two other companies. I believe Krupp Steel had one there. Wait, why can't you visit Auschwitz three? Because like actually, a building seven situation. <laughs> you could visit. Yeah, what it. are they hiding? <laughs> you could visit it, but uh, disturbingly enough, the uh, uh, the Polish government after the war continued its operation as a chemical facility because there was a chemical factory oh, there. Yeah. And even though it was like a, a Holocaust uh, thing right, going on, right. they continued it as a chemical factory after the war. So there's really no monument. I mean, there's like a plaque at Auschwitz III. But Thank God. Yes. <laughs> as long as there's a plaque, I think we'll be okay, ladies and gentlemen. Just if the audience wants to understand what uh, what's making Sean, or how, how Sean gets uh, hard when this topic comes up. Uh, you can cut this out if it's a, a 
not a great anecdote, but um, w- once I met Sean in Berlin, we we're both studying abroad that year. Oh, excuse me. It was Ferdinand Porsche and who designed the Tiger gotcha. Tank. I, I met him when he just got off the train uh, from Auschwitz. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, 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 uh, they I was updated the routes. Uh, I was complaining about recently. how you couldn't visit Auschwitz three. Sean, <laughs> Sean, like, got one and two were nice, but Sean was visiting Auschwitz, and then right after he, you know, t- finishes taking the tour of all the gas chambers, I meet him in Berlin, and immediately we go to the Holocaust <laughs> Museum in Berlin. We have three days. I want to like see the city. Sean. Uh, goes to the Holocaust Museum. I go in the museum. He goes straight to the bookstore. All oh, right. I'm halfway <laughs> through the museum. I have to come back and see where he is. Then he's at the beginning. I finish the museum, and then I have to come back and follow Sean, who is dedicated to reading every single plaque in the Berlin Holocaust Museum yes. after going through what I presume was every book in the Holocaust Museum bookstore. <laughs> Andy was mad at me because I was reading every single plaque it was in the like, Berlin Holocaust Museum. You just... <laughs> saw like it, it's listen he needed something look, for this bank bank okay it was a lonely time for him and he just wanted to memorize a, the, about the location it's, right. it's like if all, we're, we're you know uh, part of our night is just seeing a stones cover band and you're like no i want to see the whole set and i'm like dude you just saw the stones okay first of all you can go to a holocaust museum in the united states but it's not the same as going to a Holocaust museum in Germany. It's What's the far, difference, Sean? You're 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 right there in the middle of it, and you there's an energy that's that's missing when you're not where the Holocaust took place. Is this the is this the yeah. energy that you need to stay hard? That's <laughs> no no. And then on that point, first of all, that's yes. the first. Second of all, if well, the it, Holocaust didn't yes. take place in Germany, really. <laughs> it took place in Poland. Yeah, because it took place and, in Poland because and the government they today, had to hide it. From, because uh, it, it's, from it's yeah yes the government of Poland today is arguing very vociferously that they did not have anything to do with the Holocaust at all oh. and it was entirely imposed on them by Germany and there was <laughs> no collaboration. <laughs> then they but, they also added the Reichsbank was all them. <laughs> and on this running gag of me masturbating to the Holocaust, I just want to say it's a sitting gag if you ask me. Uh, if white women can listen to serial killer podcasts, uh-huh. I can read Mein Kampf for fun in okay. my free time. All right. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, you, Andy, could you separate that for a drop? <laughs> I am not a Nazi. I just will. I like gazing into the abyss. You're not. You're also not like a victim of the Nazis. No, they like pros- you know persecuted white, white women reading about serial killers. It's like oh, they what, if they, what if they? Yeah, and you're like you're you're from a country where they were like. Um, when Belfast had to turn off its lights so that the Nazis wouldn't be able to find Belfast, the rest of Ireland was like, lights on, and the Nazis just followed the coastline. I'll have you know, one million Polish Catholics perished in the Holocaust. Oh, that's so sad. Mm -hmm. A million of yom. Crazy to think how, you know, a billion people in Southeast Asia just have no clean water and oh, place the shit and <laughs> fucking electricity. Gonna... But sure, no, a, you know, a if million you, people. If you think about it, the Irish were the original victims of the Holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> we're already completely off that, the rails. That, and now we're, Raymond. <laughs> now we're about to launch into the 20-minute argument I watched Andy and Yogi have about whether or not the Holocaust is overrated. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I want to circle back to the Ryman's family specifically. 
the Ryman family. So basically, what's happened here that you saw this article about the Krispy Kreme guys are Nazis. Right. Why you saw this is the Ryman family uh, hired a, uh, a economic historian named Paul Erker from the University of Munich. They hired him in 2014 to look into their uh, father and grandfather's uh, family ties to the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And he just this year published his initial report. And then that was in turn leaked to a, a build newspaper in Germany. And and that's where all these stories are coming from. And he said that he will publish an entire book on this thing later. So this episode will kind of be, uh, I guess, speculation and going on what little info we have. But we might come back well, and do a part two if if the actual book comes out and there's a ton of new information. Sure. It's there. a prequel to a future episode, potentially. <laughs> yes. But interestingly enough, the uh, Ryman family... Uh, has since this news came out, they have said they will donate 11 million U.S. dollars to a to-be-determined uh, charity. <laughs> they don't even know it, which charity yet. Yes, but I would like to just say uh, I'm not sure who is advising them, but I do not think donating one dollar per victim is a good look. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's just stay away from 11 and 12 and six million yeah, dollar increments. I, so. I just love that they publicly announce, "Hey, we're going to be good in the future. Just, mm-hmm. just watch out." we will give this much money at one point to who we don't know maybe our own pockets we're not sure that's love when someone nuts. promises promises not to be involved in any more right ho- right uh, genocide <laughs> but it is something where it's like uh again this is kind of going to be the running theme of this episode it's like where do german fan where do german billionaires get their money right why do they have such incredible art collections <laughs> so okay let's get to like why how the story started venezuela yes uh so uh argentina oh. uh the <laughs> story um just came out this week uh when debil did like a uh, an investigative mm-hmm. um, piece on them and i guess the family probably knew it it was like a dark family secret right they hired this economic historian right and he presented his initial report which is what the build thing is based on Oh, so they, actu- so they actually were kind of open about it. Yeah. Right, so With it's like, essentially they had inklings since the 2000s, but they've finally... <laughs> <laughs> it's not a spider spitz. They, they, they figured out I mean, that they their clearly, chemistry roots are connected right. to the Nazis. That's not fucking... Right. two so, generations we're talking about, right? They're the grandkids of... Um, they are the grandkids. So it's two guys, Albert Ryman Jr., Albert Ryman Sr. We're both involved with the Nazis. You have nine kids, and again, this is a little confusing, and you should have known that they were involved in the Nazis because all of the heirs to this family, when they turn 18, have to sign a contract saying Mm -hmm. they are going to stay out of the public eye Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. not create a name or a profile for themselves. They're they're only two generations removed. Yeah, yeah. But I guess like like, the upcoming heirs have to do that as well. This is from The Motley Fool. Why would you not know? They knew. Yeah, that's exactly what we're trying like, to say. Your Come on. grandparents were up to. The, the actual story that I read was that essentially they saw documents from the Nazi era, and then they hired this economic historian to look into it. Right. But essentially, like, the father and the grandfather would say, oh, the Germans made us use forced labor or whatever. Hmm. But what's actually come out is that oh, they were lied like, too? they wow. were active participants even before the Nazis came to power. Essentially, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I actually uh, I found some video uh-huh. no. of the family when um, no. the uh, uh, historian came back 
uh, to report it. It's, it's, it's in German, but uh, I'll do what I can to translate it. Uh, okay, so the historian's telling them that uh, it looks like there's deep... Uh, <laughs> Deep connections to the oh oh okay. The historians telling them they're the the family's trying to say you know maybe we can push back on this narrative <laughs> that we have uh, um, Nazi history uh, and then okay the historian is saying uh, all of the defenses have fallen and. Uh, <laughs> The history is surrounding us, <laughs> and then they're saying the build is uh, is going to uh, publish uh, in the coming week. Okay, and, um, and yeah, he okay. He's he's trying to tell them to stop the presses, uh, the family, and uh, they're going to do a counter narrative. Um, Get Harvey from TMZ. Yeah, yeah. One of his, one of his helpers is saying, okay, uh, maybe we can, you know, shut this off for a week and then release a counter narrative. Mein Führer, TMZ is not returning phone calls. Oh, <laughs> uh, this is wonderful. I feel like I'm on YouTube in 2013. <laughs> All right, now more members of the family are coming into the room. The meeting's getting a little heated now. The Okay, Andy, what are they saying now? Uh, okay. Mein uh, Someone, you know what? <laughs> I do love, here's how secretive the Ryman family is. If you search for the Ryman family, like half the YouTube results are just downfall videos. <laughs> Oh, you remember great. that when that was all YouTube uh, was was taking that clip from Downfall yeah, and putting yeah. English subtitles on. That guy it. died like recently, didn't he? Oh yeah, yeah, best Hitler. Yeah, uh, really, honestly, that movie is amazing. Uh, if you've only seen the the famous scene, it. I like that movie a lot. I think it, it was well done. The legitimate scene is good. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. It was just kind of like somewhat harder to enjoy it after all the oh yeah, memes. all the parents. oh yeah. There's I did, never mind. That's a tangent. Um, He's also in a movie about um, German neo uh, neo Nazi gang who committed murders after the war uh -huh. and interestingly enough they were protected by western uh german intelligence which had li links with the nazis another thing that happened after the war but so there were these neo-nazi murders after the war from the national socialist underground they murdered like 11 uh muslim immigrants uh, over the course of a decade and uh in one case uh a Western German, or no, by this point, unified German intelligence agent was sitting in an internet cafe where this Turkish man was shot to death. He was sitting there. Right. He walked out the door and claimed that he didn't see this man shot to death, didn't hear this man shot what? to death. And uh, then they just let him get away with it. Wow. For and, 10 years, huh? And then he actually contacted someone, uh, this agent contacted someone on two occasions who was in contact with these three Nazis who were on the run, neo-Nazis. So it's just like one of the, the, the National Socialist Underground. And on, is, on the flip side, yes. there was a, a, a group of young leftists who uh, were actually killing former Nazis who held positions <laughs> in Germany. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And uh, they were eventually arrested. And then just out of uh, pure coincidence, like four of them killed themselves on the same <laughs> night in adjacent jail cells. Just yes. a weird coincidence that uh, all of uh, all these Bader-Meinhof... Uh, Wait, really? This, that yes. happened? I yeah. thought you were doing a uh, uh, Inglorious Bastards reference. I thought you were doing... No, no. Bader-Meinhof was this... Oh, this uh, is a real thing? Oh. Yeah, this was this like, left-wing underground movement that was like killing former Nazis. And they actually tried to steal a nuke once, which is really funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bader-Meinhof complex... Or the Bader... Uh, Bader-Meinhof. 
Yeah, I, I think the movie's called The Bader... The, Bader-Meinhof Complex, yeah. Yeah, is that the movie? Yeah. Okay, so that's a great movie. And then there's also the NSU Complex, which is about the National Socialist Underground I just mentioned. And then the guy who plays Hitler in Downfall plays a, a German intelligence agent in the uh, NSU Complex. Push. On Netflix, good movie. Anyways, Ryman Family. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens here is uh, Albert Ryman Jr., uh, and Albert Ryman Sr. are both involved in, with the Nazis. Albert Ryman Jr. adopts four children from his sister, two children he adopts from his nephew, and then has three biological children. Nine wow, children. collecting children much? Nine children total. Who's he, Angelina Jolie? <laughs> Five of the children divest their assets. They sell their stake in the company in the 90s, I believe, 97. So as of right now, there are four children from this family who still hold stake in the company. It's now called JAB Holding Company. Well, it was called uh, JAB long before that, wasn't that? Even before yeah, the Ryman's were involved in it. Yes, but the, oh. the holding company thing is different. It was called JAB, and then the German word for LLC is, I guess, G- GMBH. Yeah, GMBH. Okay. Um, so there are four heirs today. When we talk about the Ryman family today, there are four of them. There's Renet Ryman Haas. Wolfgang Ryman, uh, sorry, Renet Ryman Haas is born 1951. Wolfgang Ryman is born 1952. Matthias Ryman Anderson, born 1965. And Stefan Ryman Anderson, born 1963. And these are the four heirs who currently, uh, they have, um, I believe, 90% of the shares of JAB Holding Company. Their net worth ranges from, I think Forbes has them about 3.7 billion US dollars each to, I think Financial Times has them at like five-ish billion dollars each. Hmm. Uh, all the way up to some people say 33. It's a private company, so it just entirely depends what you value their assets. I at. like that two of them have uh, Ryman hyphens in their names, which, you know, it was maternal side, but they wanted to keep the, uh, the, the Ryman, Ryman name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how long now that that article's come out that that's going to stay in their names. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You wanted to say something? Just to give you an idea of how this company is structured. So they have what they have stakes in is the like the overall parent company of JEB Holding Company. S-A-R-L, mm-hmm. which I guess is like LLC. And it, that's the parent to five wholly owned subsidiaries that are all based in outside of Germany. Mm-hmm. They're in Luxembourg, ne- Netherlands, and Austria. Huh. Yeah, my understanding is that JB Holding Company moved to Luxembourg in 2012, uh, partly to get away around possible German inheritance tax laws. Oh, really? Sure. Yeah, so it's like a tax avoidance thing that they're now based out of Luxembourg. That makes sense. Yeah. Lux- yes. Luxembourg is a tax haven to a lot of companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Damn, I can't believe those people who became billionaires off slave labor would do something like that. <laughs> wait, wait. Are you saying that Luxembourg, a uh, uh, nation with more uh, companies than residents, <laughs> is a tax haven? That's... <laughs> That's what I'm strongly implying. Well, I'm shocked. The other thing I want yeah. to mention is that if you look at uh, Wolfgang Ryman's profile on Forbes.com, mm-hmm. uh, there's a little blurb in it that says all of the heirs are they are chemists. Like, they all practice chemistry like their uh, grandfather. You could uh, say it's in their blood. <laughs> literally, yeah. <laughs> but, I, uh, but, Sean, you were t- we, just th- we were talking about like how that's probably in a clause for them receiving the inheritance to go right. into the family practice. So this is from like a video I watch on Motley Fool, but but like, yeah. Like when, one of them just makes math as a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, when they turn 18, they have to again sign this con to get their access to the family money. They have to say they're going to stay out of the public eye, maintain a kind of secretive low profile, which is why we have so little information on them. But they also all have Do to... Do not hire a family historian. <laughs> 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 that would have been smart. 
But they also all have to be trained chemists, going back to the mid-19th century when this company was founded. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of go through. Uh, JAB Holding has a ton of fucking stakes in different companies, but just as some of them, they have Krispy Kreme, the controlling shares in Krispy Kreme, Pet a Pret a Monger, Preamange. I've never known how to pronounce that. Place, yes. By the way, <laughs> we're going to use the original French. <laughs> so Preamange, apparently. All right. Uh, yeah. Curing the coffee makers, which we'll get to in a, in a little bit. They have they just bought a big stake, a majority stake in Dr Pepper, Snapple, Panera, Pete's Coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have. They used to own Cartier, uh, the luxury brand that controls Calvin Klein, among others. Mm-hmm. They now own about 38% after it IPO'd. They had a, a majority share in Jimmy Choo's luxury shoes, but they sold it. And uh, you had some other steam. <laughs> they own a lot of shit. Oh, they had so shitty like Starbucks, didn't they? Yeah. They have, a, they have several. Yeah. Pete's Coffee, which is actually how the Starbucks guys mm-hmm. learned to brew, was from the guy Pete. But right. So the like JAB Holdings overall company has an uh, estimated net worth of between about twenty billion and thirty billion dollars, mm-hmm. and then generally they have three different divisions of holdings. So they have food, and then juice soda, and then coffee and tea. Huh. Mm-hmm. And so in, within the food division is Krispy Kreme, which they acquired in uh, twenty sixteen. And Panera Bread, which they acquired oh, they in acquired. 2017. Yeah, they they bought yeah, these yeah, they bought these. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. They didn't. I thought they found. like synthesized the donuts, <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, all right, let's take this to the franchises. Krispy Kreme were naturally occurring, and they actually just <laughs> harvest them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and uh, Keurig they acquired in 2015. Keurig they acquired in 2015. So in like a three-year time period. <laughs> I'm just imagining after World War II. They're at their like fucking mustard gas factory and they pull the lever and then suddenly donuts start coming <laughs> out. Yeah, like we have to do civilian <laughs> usages of this technology. In in one side go undesirable <laughs> no. and then out and then out one side come wow. Krispy Kreme. Wow. <laughs> that's what that's what happens when you cremate Polish people is donut cremate. <laughs> That's the secret at Holocaust three. All sorts of fucking baked so. goods come out. <laughs> So in like in a space of three years, they you acquired Sean first. tons, tons and tons of these companies. And actually, Moody's was like kind of warning them that they might downgrade their the the JAB debt mm-hmm. because of all of these like acquire acquisitions at seemingly huge premiums. Like uh, mm-hmm. I was reading a, a Motley Fool thing that said they're like an average of like twenty to thirty percent above the market price. Mm-hmm. And then so they're buying these companies and mainly taking them private. And it was seen as sort of like a a long like a long term sort of a gamble on growth, I guess. Interesting. Yeah. Right. So, and, and this what I want to talk about next is primarily Albert Ryman Senior and Albert Ryman Junior. And I'll, I'll kind of go through the company history. So it's interesting. You have JAB Holdings, which is what the family controls, but then you have the chemical company. It's it's now based in I believe London called Reckitt uh, Benkiser. Uh, <laughs> This chemical company was created in 1999, but it's interesting. Like, so if you go to the official history of Reckitt Benkiser uh, online, you will learn that this chemical company was founded in 1823, and then nothing happened until 1956. <laughs> if you go to the official website, you can learn all about 1823, and then from 1956 onwards. I like that they had to add an 11-year buffer. Right, right, right. <laughs> 
Um, like, they were still into Nazi shit in like 52, yeah. 53. Oh, yeah. Still making money off yeah. it somehow. What year so, were we clean? About 11 years later. <laughs> so, uh, Andy, you can help me with the pronunciation they just, here. They, it just took so long to like scrub the swastikas off all the walls. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that was part of the Berlin airlift was just more cleaning chemicals for them to take. We can't make enough chemicals to clean. <laughs> that was the first uh, commercial usage of their <laughs> of their products. Was removing all the swastikas from people's houses. You're like, we know it works because we did it in our corporate headquarters. <laughs> we're gonna take what, a lot of art down. What can we use Zyklon B for now? <laughs> we got a whole bunch of it. Uh, all right, Andy, help me with the pronunciation here. Jo- Johan Adam Benkaiser. Uh, ben Kieser. Ben Kieser. So he was a, a German chemist. He lived from uh, 1782 to 1851. In 1823, he founded a business specializing in industrial and consumer goods and chemicals. And it's just from Wikipedia. He initially made uh, ammonia, hydrochloric acid, ammonium chloride. Um, he was apparently also involved in phosphates and wine uh, making as well. But Carl Ludwig Ryman is the grandfather of Albert Ryman Sr., and in uh, he joins the business in 1828, Carl Ludwig Ryman, joins the business 1828, marries uh, Johann's daughter. Uh, Johann Benkaiser dies in 1851, and because Ryman had married his daughter, he takes over the business. So essentially, 1851, the Ryman family takes over this business that this other chemist found it because he marries his daughter and marries into the business. What were they up to in 1848? Uh, <laughs> very little information. of 18... All right. Yeah, fucking selling phosphates <laughs> to the Imperial Army or whatever. I'll tell you what. They, uh, 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 Marx and Engels met them on the battlefield. Yeah, they, they had some choice words about that, uh, that fella, the, um, Karl Marx, that we'll get to. But so it's interesting where um, these two people uh, in... 1858, they start uh, this company, and this is again called the Johann A. Benkaiser GmbH, which is German for LLC. Uh, so that's the company name. And in 1858, they start a factory based in Ludwigshafen, which is in uh, the border area with France that's called the Ruhr Valley. Ludwigshafen. Ludwigshafen. And so an interesting thing happens in World War One. Again, like there's very little information about this period, but here's what we do know. In Ludwig Schaffen, um, World War One uh, separate the S and the H. Ludwig Schaffen. Ludwig's Hoffen. Ludwig's Hoffen. In Ludwigshafen, again, this is in the Rhineland, near the border with France. This is the a uh, uh, major industrial area in Germany in both World War One and World War Two. So this area produces most of the poison gas used on the Western Front in World War One. Really? So we don't know exactly how uh, Ben Kaiser uh, was making their money, but we do know they made a significant profit during World War One, and we can assume that they were involved in producing poison gas for use against the Western <laughs> Allies. <laughs> An interesting uh, little historical fact, the first strategic bombing in history takes place on May 27, 1915, uh, when French planes uh, bomb uh, BASF plants in Ludwigshafen, uh, killing uh, 12 people. And uh, they did this because, of course, they knew that this was a major manufacturer of poison gas. 
And um, essentially, BASF uh, was a major German chemical company that would join with others mm-hmm. to create what becomes IG Farben, which was not only the biggest company in Germany, but also one of the biggest companies in the world right. uh, throughout the Nazi uh, era and even before that. And so it's interesting where it's like, Again, we don't have that much information, but we can assume because they were working in Ludwig Schaffen and IG Farben BASF was the major chemical player there. Mm-hmm. They were kind of a minor chemical player. It seems pretty clear that they were maybe a subcontractor for IB, IG sure, Farben sure. or, you know, like a, a somebody a little lower down in the supply chain that worked with them to produce for whatever the uh, Nazi government needed. And... I guess we can just kind of go through uh, Albert Sr. and Albert Jr. Because Albert Sr. is the grandson of uh, this guy who married into the chemical factory. Right. And uh, so they, they make a lot of money in World War One. I. I believe he takes over the company um, by the 1930s, if not before. And uh, he was, uh, both of them were avid Nazis. Uh, oh, you don't say. Albert Sr. and Albert Jr., um, that's fun. Yeah. So they donated money to the SS uh-huh. in, in 1931. This is two years before Hitler came to power. Uh, both both Albert Sr. and Albert Jr. Uh, joined the Nazi party in 1931. And um, uh, he wrote, Albert Sr., I believe, wrote a letter to Heinrich Himmler. Yeah. So... In July 1937, Albert, no, Albert Ryman Jr. wrote a letter to Heinrich Himmler, leader of the SS. Right. He said this, quote, We are a purely Aryan family business that is over 100 years old. The owners are unconditional followers of the race theory. I'll turn that down. Which one's going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> but so he writes this letter about how they're like followers of the race theory. And then in 1941, this is just from the New York Times article on this, the company was deemed, quote, a crucial firm in the war because it, uh, because it produced items for the Wehrmark uh, and the armaments industry. And it's interesting where um, essentially uh, throughout this time, um, throughout this time, uh, Ludwig Schaffen, it's heavily involved in synthetic, um, oil. Essentially they're trying to like turn coal into oil. Mm -hmm. They had, they had some success there turning coal into oil, turning coal into rubber. Uh, I think it's called like the Harman Bosch process or something. Um, but I I guess like, and (laughs) And so this this industrial center of the Ruhr Valley where they are, uh, it's I believe Ludwig Schaffen during World War II is bombed 121 times by the Allies. Wow. Uh, 56 of those times hit the uh, major IG Farben plant there. Uh, there were two major IG Farben plants 56 there. 56 of the times? Yeah. I mean, wow. that was like how carpet bombing worked uh, in sure, World War yeah, II. Yeah, yeah, you're right, right, right. <laughs> So there were two major IG Farben plants there. And also there. didn't work in all the other times they bombed them. And, didn't get it. <laughs> uh, and then by the end of December 1944, the IG Farben plants were completely inoperational because they'd just been bombed so frequently every right. goddamn week. You know, at target number 38, we got them, but we wanted to do the extra 12 because we figured, <laughs> why not? <laughs> but so I guess... It's what's like a comedy book. Like, all right, we got the company up and running again. <laughs> and then a bomb comes down. <laughs> 
<laughs> so this this minor so what happens um particularly in uh 1942 in uh March 1942 a guy named Fritz uh Sackler Sackle uh takes over as essentially uh general plenipotentiary for labor deployment okay that's english <laughs> <laughs> Colonel. (laughs) (laughs) Colonel. He's got to do this, Sean. A Feldmarschum. (laughs) So uh, this guy, he would be hanged at Nuremberg for war crimes, but he takes over. Yeah, he takes over uh, essentially labor in Nazi Germany in in March 1942. And uh, what they immediately start doing is because of the war. Implementing a socialist program. Because of the war and all of the um, casualties on the Eastern Front, the German army was losing like 40,000 killed a month on the Eastern Front. Uh, (laughs) Oh. They have a severe labor shortage. And initially, they're like putting out posters and trying to get Poles and people in the Ukraine to voluntarily uh, come to the German Reich to work. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, a problem comes uh, because the Nazis are extremely racist. (laughs) 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 And uh, they treat these people as if they were subhuman. (laughs) So an interesting thing happens where uh, rumors filter back eastward and uh, the voluntary uh, stream of workers uh, immediately stops. Yeah, that sounds right. In March 1942, again, this guy Fritz uh, uh, Sockel takes over as a chief of labor deployment. And they start essentially press-ganging labor, where they go into Poland, the Ukraine, uh, various Soviet countries, um, and they essentially say, they point at civilians and say, okay, you're deported back to Germany to be a forced worker now. And um, Also like border patrol agents, got it. So uh, Fritz writes a letter to Alfred Rosenberg on uh, uh, April 1942. He says, all the men, uh, these are prisoners of war and foreign civilian workers, must be fed, sheltered, and treated in such a way as to exploit them to the highest possible extent at the lowest conceivable degree of expenditure. And so this is essentially they want to feed them enough to keep them alive but and working, but nothing else. Right. But even that didn't happen because... What happens is essentially he pulls, I believe, seven million uh, workers over just a two-year period. Yeah, so or no, over five million workers because there were they already at this point had you know French and other POWs working, mm-hmm. but he starts uh, press ganging all these civilians and he brings five million slave workers to uh, Germany between uh, 1942 and 1944. And just because, you know, thousands of new workers every day were arriving in Germany, it was, even if they wanted to, which of course they didn't, uh, it was impossible to really provide them with uh, adequate housing or rations. You keep saying slave workers. It's just slaves, right? It's not, they're not slaves. Well, it's not indentured servitude. It's slaves. I was just reading a table from that book. Yeah. And um, it said that, like, the SS or the Wehrmacht paid, like, a rental fee, basically, to bring them in. Oh, really? Well, yeah, Yeah. it was interesting. Like, essentially, companies that got this slave labor, including IG Farben and the Ryman's company, they would pay the SS 
like I think it's like three Reichsmark per day or whatever. Wait, companies. Have... I thought this was a socialist <laughs> organization. But they're <laughs> they're paying the companies. They're not paying right, right, not right. paying the slaves. Well, the companies are actually paying the SS or the government. I believe the way it worked was the government of Nazi Germany would enslave these people, and then the companies, IG Farben or whoever, would pay the government say three Reichsmark a day or four Reichsmark for a skilled skilled worker mm-hmm. or whatever it may be. Well, I'm glad that we have a society have moved away from companies uh, paying. A government for uh, imprisoned slave laborers. Thank yeah, that the definitely Lord. never happens. Yeah, now. but uh, but you know the Nazis were socialists because they capped profits at like five percent. <laughs> <laughs> so everything more than that went back to the government. Um, but so just like this is from the, again the book The Wages of Destruction. I just wanted to do one more illustrative thing before we talk a little bit more about the Ryman family, and then we kind of move on to the the present. But so what a gift, as we mentioned, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people were arriving every month. You know, these workers or sorry, per day, thousands were arriving per day. And uh, because of these conditions, it's, it's one of the weirder things. In December of 1942, a commission of inquiry uh, goes and visits the Ruhr, which is, again, uh, near where the Ryman's factory is located. Mm-hmm. Wait, where'd they go? The Ruhr Valley. Where? The Ruhr Valley. Where'd they go? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> uh, and again, these are uh, Nazi bureaucrats who are familiar with the Holocaust in the East. And uh, they go and visit essentially the, uh, the, condi- the camps that these Eastern laborers are being kept in um, uh, in the, in the Ruhr. And uh, they, re- they write this report. Ruhr now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, quoting from the book, as just... <laughs> As just one example, they singled out the camp operated by a member of the Visteg Trust, which was, I believe, involved in the railroads, where they witnessed, quote, a picture of desolation and immiseration, which would never be extinguished. And again, these are Nazi bureaucrats <laughs> visiting this camp the Eastern workers in the Ruhr were kept in. Are we the baddies? <laughs> and writing a report about a picture of desolation and immiseration that would never be extinguished. And um, again, from the book. Well, you know they're so, wrong about the second part, so yes. maybe, maybe they're not so right about the first part. But so it's interesting. That's called logic. Where essentially the the Ryman family they used French uh, POWs as slave labor, and uh, like everything with the Nazis, there's like a racial hierarchy. So Western POWs tended to they were still made to be slave labor, but they were like generally treated under the Geneva Convention, you know. Mm-hmm. But like lower and lower. Uh, got to keep the, the, ver- the version of the Geneva Convention where you, they, they get to have slaves. It's it's <laughs> weird. Like I read, like apparently the Geneva Convention, you can at least at the time you could make people do forced work, POWs, uh-huh. but you couldn't make them build armaments. But the Germans <laughs> still made them build armaments. But they like actually fed them and stuff. But uh, you know, besides of course uh, Jews during the Holocaust, we were just you know straight up exterminated or worked to death. Geneva uh, plus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> The only rung above them, the the second lowest rung, was workers from the east. So, you know, uh, the Rymans had workers from the east, and they had French POWs, and French POWs were still in, you know, terrible conditions, but it was really nothing compared to the workers from the east. And I just wanted to do one other quote from this book here. Uh, By autumn 1942, uh, given the conditions in the camps of the workers in the east, uh, tens of thousands of half-dead... Osterbeter, which I believe is German for East Eastern worker. 
Yes. Osterbiter. Osterbiter. But I, I like Osterbiter better. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do when I read about the Holocaust. <laughs> so. so uh, elite Osterbiter unit. Yeah. From the wages of destruction. I mean, this whole episode is just Sean Osterbaiting. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, look, I'm sorry. I know I'm the one who talks the most, but this is the Holocaust episode. <laughs> no, so this, this is, is your baby. This so. is this is my my time to shine. <laughs> so, given the conditions in these worker camps, tens of thousands of half dead uh, uh, Eastern workers had to be shipped back eastwards in autumn of 1942 under nightmarish conditions. In September, one transport was described in apocalyptic terms. Quote, there were dead passengers on the returning train. Women on that train gave birth to children that were tossed from open windows during the, bil- the, during the journey, while people sick with tuberculosis and venereal disease rode in the same coach. The dying lay in freight cars... <laughs> venereal disease the dying lay in freight cars without straw and one of the dead was thrown onto the embankment and then there are all these reports from this time of like essentially seeing eastern workers thrown out of train cars dead because they were kept in such terrible conditions and um and then like the other thing and uh, again and they weren't paid for their lunch break <laughs> It's just kind and of they funny. never got to watch The Office. <laughs> Think about that, ladies and gentlemen. It's like you can listen to our like Walton episode where we talk about how we like cheat at minimum li- wage right, laws right. and exploited labor, and then you get to our Nazi episode, and you learn what labor practices mm. can really be like. Yeah, so um, cheer the fuck up and maybe stop asking your uh, <laughs> ping pong table office to uh, <laughs> unionize because uh, do you think those guys had ping pong tables that's true you think they had free coca-cola this is the episode that says working conditions in america are just fine thank you <laughs> i mean so far this sounds a lot like the klobuchar office <laughs> <laughs> um the, the 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 inmates were forced to shave the legs <laughs> of the ss officers <laughs> rumor like, has it it's funny because like two weeks ago we went to see uh that apollo 11 movie and mm-hmm. at, at the end of it the astronauts are like you know, we especially want to thank everyone who worked so hard to make this happen. And it's like, wow, Werner von Braun really uh, turned around how he feels about the people who make his rockets. <laughs> <laughs> he, unless, unless he like, well, the, the U-2 famously um, killed more workers than targets. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Nazis ballistic missile that uh, Werner von Braun, who also put Americans on the moon, was in charge of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I the wonder, V2? The V2, yeah. He but U2. U2 also did yeah. kill no mm-hmm. more workers. Yeah, no, U2. <laughs> they really yeah. work on the edge. <laughs> All those people killed themselves after that shit was put on their iPod without permission. <laughs> this is not my music! <laughs> uh, but so one more thing about the Eastern workers. Uh, this is just straight up from Wikipedia. Uh, by 1944, uh, most of the new workers were very young, uh, under the age of 16, um, 30% were as young as 12 to 14 years old when they were taken from their homes in forced slavery. The age limit was dropped to 10 in November 1943. So Germany was stealing children. And the other thing is uh, 
women were often uh, forced into brothels and sex slavery within right. Germany. Um, but one other thing, because about half of the adolescents were females, uh, Eastern workers were often the victims of rape and tens of thousands of pregnancies due to rape occurred. And this is relevant because the Ryman family, uh, s- senior and junior, not only had uh, female Eastern workers on their chemical factory, they also had female Eastern workers at their personal residence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so essentially what we know from what has leaked out of this little preliminary report is that uh, it's unusual. I'm just quoting from the New York Times here. The Ryman case stands out um, because they're quoting an expert. It was very common for companies to use forced laborers, but it was not common for a company boss to be in direct and physical contact with those forced laborers. So senior and junior um, most likely raped their help. But Sean, they're giving eleven million dollars to <laughs> a charity that we don't even. No one knows yet. Po- so less than point zero one percent of their net worth, right? Uh, to make up for for all of this. I mean, it, that's got to count for something. No, um, it doesn't. There were reports of like uh, kind of vague reports of uh, some of the uh, people um, being sexually assaulted, right? Um, at the uh, Ryman. Yeah, so just from the New York Times, which is like a summary of the Build article, uh, female workers... There's no more detail on a lot of stuff, actually. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It um, does or does not? It does. Mm-hmm. So female workers were f- from Eastern Europe, these East workers we just mentioned. They were forced to stand at, stand at attention naked in the factory barracks at the chemical company. Uh, those who refused were sexually abused. Workers were kicked and beaten, among them one Russian woman who cleaned the Ryman's private villa. So they at least... Albert Ryman Jr. and Sr. at least physically abused these workers personally, if not raped them, which, (laughs) I mean, we'll see. But And and so... Do you think they're going to up the amount of money once the book comes out? Like, uh, 11, (laughs) we made 111, like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Well, it's going to be a reverse auction. Because, like, the sad reality is that, you know, even finding all the information we currently have Mm -hmm. took uh, an extra level of needle in a haystack Googling. Right, because, yeah, they've stayed out of the public eye. Sean posted, uh, uh, showed me that, like, you can't even look up the faces of these people. Like, it's very difficult to find who's who and shit. And the reality is, is that like in a few years, if they give enough money, people will look at these people like philanthropic heroes and not the fucking uh, benefiters of uh, rapists and assaultists that mm-hmm. were linked to the Nazis. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure the, that the, these uh, Ryman uh, Sr. and Jr. Uh, were, they faced consequences for their action. Is that right, Sean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so at the end of the war, the Rymans were investigated by uh, the Allied occupying powers. Of course, the Ruhr was run by the French provisional authorities, and the French provisional authorities wanted to bar them from continuing business activities. But the Americans overruled the judgment, and we don't because they it- also had a, a business in Heidelberg, which was uh, under the American provisional authority. Mm. And we don't know exactly why, but if I were to hazard a guess, I would say it's paperclip related. <laughs> well, in in the American, so I guess in the French Provisional Authority, the French mm-hmm. uh, weren't too sympathetic about the uh, the Rymans, but then oui, oui. they kind of uh, squeaked over to Heidelberg and said to the Americans, "Oh my gosh, these Nazis! We didn't like them at all. We they made they made us do the uh, workers thing. In fact, we were part of the resistance. Like they actually claimed to be part, like have involvement in the resistance really? against the Nazis. Yeah, and the Americans were like." Yeah, okay. Sure. That's whatever. 
They made us eat scones, and we like croissants. Man, that adds (laughs) up. All right, good enough. But so, uh, by 1943, 107, again, uh, from New York Daily News, by 1943, 175 workers, or around 30% of the workforce for the uh, Ryman factory, 30% of the workforce were slave laborers. Um, And this is also, interestingly enough, Albert Ryman, I believe, senior, was chairman of the Chamber of Commerce and Industry in Germany from 1937 to 1941. This was, you know, a business association. And they, of course, paid into the forced labor fund, which we mentioned, you know, they paid the government, whatever, Mm -hmm. maybe three or four Reichsmarks a day. Mm -hmm. Um, They had, like, grossly gendered and racist, like, amounts that they would pay for each type of laborer. Like they would pay less for women. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like half of like 40 to 50 percent of like the not even the the Nazis can deal with the wage gap. (laughs) Yeah. Even though though these weren't actually wages. I will say that's probably, you know, the most offensive part of this is that they how dare they be sexist among everything. (laughs) I got to the end of this Nazi book and I was like, well, it sounded like socialism, but they didn't (laughs) didn't didn't solve the the wage gap. The slave cost gap. (laughs) And then Tom was like, all right, I'm all in for socialism. But, I mean, (laughs) it was extremely barbaric, uh, obviously. And, you know, these people were given starvation wages or starvation rations. They were kept in these camps. Um, They were, you know, these worker camps. Uh, Anyone from the East had to wear these badges that said Aust on it. So they knew they're from the East. Um, They couldn't interact with any Germans. If if you had any sort of sexual relation with a Mm -hmm. German... If you're a man from the East, you'll right. be shot, and then uh, the German will be imprisoned. The Gestapo went on different campaigns to like give out leaflets, mm-hmm. because it was like an interesting irony. Is essentially they created this giant foreign workforce right, within right. their like racial paradise. So the Gestapo went on all these different campaigns, handing out leaflets saying like, "Don't talk to, don't breed with the Easterners because of their blood." But of course, you know the women were many of them conscripted and forced into sexual slavery for uh, brothels for the SS men and for uh, uh, the soldiers of the Wehrmacht. Um, wow! Yeah. So they literally treated these slaves like livestock. Like yes, don't fucking interact with them like they're people. They yeah. are literally our property. Not to take away from the gravity of what you're saying, but in German you pronounce uh, you're supposed to pronounce W's like V's, so it's Wehrmacht. The Wehrmacht. Anyway, I thought that was worth <laughs> mentioning That's a good uh, place in the middle of this, <laughs> this uh, rape saga. Um, Can we get back to the yeah. Rymans, please? So, Senior dies in 1954. Junior dies in 1984. But oh. after the war, as we mentioned, the French wanted to ban them, but the Americans overruled them. And after the war, they move away from industrial chemicals and the various you know, synthetic stuff they were doing for the, um, the German army, the Wehrmacht. 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 Uh, the very synthetic stuff. They, they move into household chemicals. And uh, this is where the official website picks up. Uh, in 1956, they diversify into co- consumer goods and industrial cleaning, cleaning products. They launch a Calgon water softener, is apparently popular. They uh, launch a dishwashing detergent in 1964. You guys ever have hard water? A fabric softener. I like my water chunky. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know about you. A fabric softener in 1966. And then this kind of keeps going. They they have like a big boom in consumer products after the war. And then in 1999. uh, Is it it a uh, horizontal move to go from water softeners to fabric softeners? Or are those two separate sciences? In 1999, the chemical company merges uh, with... Because fabric and water are very different. 
materials. <laughs> Merges with a, a London-based company to become what's today known as Rekert uh, Benkiser, which is today the world's number one household cleaning uh, conglomerate. Uh, they're most known for the product Lysol. They're the ones who sell Lysol. Oh, dear. And, uh, and JAB Holding Company... Uh, at this point, still owns about 7.8% of this new conglomerate. But JAB Holding Company is uh, moves away from the actual chemical company, but they still have this 7 8% holding. I mean, water softening is making hard water soft, so the fabric softener wouldn't be that different. Because, like, hard water is, like, water that, like, is, like, um, it doesn't clean you as well. Like it. What? What is water softener? Water has different levels of degrees of quality, and there's hard water and soft water. And like hard water, if you've like ever pure, sh- like purity, mm-hmm. if you've ever okay. showered with it, it like leaves your hair feeling like like cl- clopped up together and stuff. So like it, it's been, more viscous. Just, almost. Kaiser water softener always comes out smooth. I'm just imagining the bottle for like a post-war German uh, laundry detergent, and it's got like a picture of a German guy beating <laughs> an Eastern worker <laughs> for fucking oh up the God. clothing. <laughs> No stains. <laughs> Just fucking wailing on her with a cane. Like I know we're running bits about water right now, but yes. there is a huge difference between hard and soft water, and I'm oh. very concerned about water quality for the future. So, oh, okay, this is a topic. I've been using hard water my whole life, I guess. <laughs> what I'm wondering is, uh, what designer they hired to make that, Sean? Hugo Boss. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean. And so this kind of gives you an idea, like, again, whenever this book on the Ryman family comes out, we'll, we'll know more about what exactly they were doing for the Vermock. When's uh, it out? We don't know. Oh. They said that they will publicly release it when it <laughs> sure. comes out. Sure, they but will. But we will see. Sure. But yeah, it, it, it'll probably be something where they'll like... Cal- Just blocked off a couple months. <laughs> they'll calculate how many sales it gets, and then they'll base their donation on that. Right, right. Just how many people are fucking Pages aware of this shit. two through 80 are going to be redacted. So wait, they're making money off of their own uh, family Nazi ties investigation? Mm-hmm. I assume they'll donate the proceeds. The, uh, the <laughs> University of Munich uh, historian is looking into this. But, you know, so we don't know exactly what they were doing, but based on, you know, the IG Farben plant nearby, it's likely that they were doing the same kind of synthetic rubber, synthetic oil, but also, um, uh, uh, what is it, nitrogen for Mm -hmm. the fertilizer, um, uh, for the explosives, you know, they were likely involved because they were declared, you know, essential for the uh, Wehrmacht in 1941. They were probably supplying explosives for the military as well. So, you know, this is how they kind of made their money and they had their capital established. And even if it was bombed to pieces by the allies, they were allowed to set up and keep, you know, most of their assets and ownership structures. And then they diversified into consumer goods and then they built their fortune from there. And um, and I guess we can just kind of with the time we have left, talk about the brands that JAB Holding Company has has invested in because the four heirs we mentioned they're not involved in day-to-day business mm-hmm. but they just kind of like let i think what did you say steve two people run the jab holdings yeah there's uh, so there's two general managers and one of them um olivier goudet mm-hmm. i think um <laughs> andy <laughs> is <laughs> it's a he's a frenchman um he's a former chairman of inbev for a while mm. um he resigned due to like a conflict of interest between that and one of their other holdings and the other guy a german could not be associated with beer that bad <laughs> <laughs> peter harf uh he's a german he's educated at um he, yeah, like he, he got a master's business degree from harvard right 
and then he and Oliver are currently managing all of JAB Holdings, mm-hmm. and they're instrumental in the latest round of acquisitions, which is for the history of the company very large. Mm-hmm. So like they they've rounded up, they've stakes in, like we like we've mentioned, Krispy Kreme, mm-hmm. Keurig, Panera Bread, um, a bunch of like regional sort of coffee powerhouses like a pizza coffee green mountain um i do i do like that uh the same logic that uh makes you think uh yeah the nazis are gonna win the war makes you think yeah keurig is a good investment in 2015 (laughs) 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 you know when it's peaked and everybody's just starting to realize this shit is terrible yeah one of their latest acquisitions is a um it's like a string of veterinary hospitals in the u.s oh really yeah I mean, everything they got money in is really stuff that I know as shit only white people use. Uh, vets, Krispy Kreme, yeah, Keurigs. I'm not saying black and brown people don't use this stuff. I'm just saying that like I, I, I don't see that nearly as often as a veterinary's office filled with uh, Sarah, Samantha, and Hannah's, if you know what I mean. Great take from the guy who has by far the most expensive coffee maker <laughs> everyone yeah. in Grub that's why That's why we wanted Yogi to talk shit on curing on this episode, because well, they made this big investment in 2015, and then everybody realized, oh, curing is fucking terrible. You can't Keurig. change... Th- Keurigs mm. are fucking bullshit. Um, they make uh, subpar coffee, and the reality is, is if you like them... In the future, you might have a coffee shop and they only have Keurigs in it because fucking fuck you and your bullshit taste. You know, well, actually, the, I mean, the dirty truth about Keurigs is mm-hmm. no one likes them, but offices get them because right. of course they're a corporate yeah. entity. You don't have to make it's, the it's coffee simple. in the morning. Yeah. No, like no one really just, likes Otis elevators. They want this <laughs> right, 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 right. So this is like the Otis yeah. of of the uh, consumer staples sort of co- yeah. coffee market. Yeah, it's like it, instead of having to buy. Uh, you know, vanilla cream for someone to put it in the fridge and refresh every week for this one person in the office. You just have the vanilla cream uh, coffee bullshit packet that they put in and press a button. And right. then it's disgusting, but you save like 30 bucks a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, so like the reality is, is we all know that these cups are not as biodegradable as a company claims because it's plastic and aluminum and uh, a filter paper that are the items. And because they're a mix of materials, they're not like completely recyclable just on their own. And what so if they buy a landfill in uh, eastern Poland? <laughs> <laughs> so um, they, they had, um, some of their other well-known non-food soda coffee holdings are Mucinex and Durex condoms. Right. <laughs> when you, Together. Uh, when they you have a value get... pack where they sell them together. <laughs> When you're sick and you want to fuck, mm-hmm. Mucinex and Durex. Mm-hmm. The K-Cups are nitrogen-flushed sealed, so like I, I think that uh, when it comes to the chemical part of this, that's Anyone really where... Anyone else have like, the uh, mental image of the Mucinex guy <laughs> trying to put on a Durex? <laughs> Voiced by TJ Miller. But he's, inside, he's inside of your, your body. <laughs> <laughs> he's about to fuck some other yeah. uh, piece of snot. Yeah. Now, now I'm just imagining the Mucinex guy as a foreman in Auschwitz three. <laughs> With the little hat and everything. <laughs> so I read a few articles about the Keurig. Guys, like, I mean, it comes off, but I've got to be brand loyal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, our review art goes by Keurigs. One's on Mother Jones and one's on CoffeeDetective.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, both of them, basically, they asked the Cure company about BPA, and the Cure company says that the water uh, area or the cups don't contain any BPA, which is what a company would say to those claims. But this article on CoffeeDetective.com, the comments go back to 2009, so it must have mm-hmm. come out late 2008 or something, and they go till 2018. Mm-hmm. And... Literally 75% of the comments are people being like, I drink Keurig, and I started getting headaches and nausea and fatigue, <laughs> and then I stopped drinking Keurig, and then that didn't happen. And then one commenter was like, I think these people are just drinking too much coffee, even though I will say the flavored ones do give me headaches. So yeah. I'm like, they're admitting that they're putting poison into their body, but they're not admitting that it's from the Keurig itself. But I mean, you know, you want to talk about a company that's not taking responsibility for what they're causing in society, there's 10 years of comments of people being like, this coffee makes me feel bad. And Keurig's like, I mean, we're BPA-free, so we're good, right? Um, and outside of just the green implications of the K cups, uh, mind you, Ks are all around when it comes to this company, if you know what mm-hmm. I mean. Um, it's just shittier coffee. I mean, Andy's right that it's a convenience factor, but... Man, when you compromise um, in quality for convenience, you're only going to be left with worse and worse things in the long run. I mean, that's again, it's not personal convenience. It's a line item in the in the office. It's personal if it's if it's, it's what you're using, Andy. It, what I'm saying is though, it's it's not you don't have it in your house usually. Some people, a lot it's of people, at the do have it at the house. Well, yeah, and that's on them. Um, <laughs> Instant coffee. Yeah, that's. I mean, that that's indefensible. Uh, but <laughs> good. that's good enough. Yeah. You know, you know how the IG Farben plant near Auschwitz three is still operational. Uh-huh. You think they have a Keurig there? <laughs> <laughs> they have just two. Wanna, One just want to the East German workers hit, hit the break room for some irony. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they have real. They have like an espresso machine because they're like, we we wouldn't do that to our workers. <laughs> <laughs> If you look online of Panera racist and sexist, there yeah. are way more articles than you'd think. Um, one was some lady got a receipt back, and on the receipt it said, it was a black lady that was a customer, and the receipt said, add watermelon for this bitch. <laughs> um, the Panera has had a history of... Uh, what if this is how JAB Holdings makes their investment decisions? <laughs> <laughs> they just look for the most racist companies. Well, they have like a history of sexism and racism where they like will only hire attractive women and keep black employees in the back of the kitchen and not as cashiers. In Panera? At Panera, yeah. Huh. And um, this is incidental, but uh, an FBI tracked like a alt-right troll online and they were tracked at a Panera. And listen, any place where a troll like that feels comfortable is suspect to racism and sexism and bigotry. So mm. uh, Panera were sucks. Were they living at the Panera or were they? They were using their IP address, the Wi-Fi at Panera to do oh, all so their posting. Oh, they were posting. like munching on their sandwich. Yeah, they were and like. And being like. Uh, They're like, mm, this flavorless panini is so good. <laughs> Fuck the Jews. That's what they were doing every day. And the FBI was like, maybe we should go to this Panera where this IP address is from. Figure out if it's an employee or a customer. Then <laughs> it turns out it was the touchscreen. Became self-aware and racist. <laughs> well, when your food doesn't have flavor, you think brown people aren't necessary. Um, but so, and then uh, Preta Manger. <laughs> How the fuck do you pronounce this? Preamange? You're on Pre- your own. Preamange. Uh, that was actually founded by a Jewish uh, businessman, and then it was, of course, bought by the JAB group, and then the uh, Daily Mail revealed their Nazi forced labor ties, and uh, Jeffrey Hyman was the founder. He passed away huh. before. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was lost. Um, 
he he passed away, and his sister gave a quote to the Daily Mail saying, "quote nice. it's a, it's a sad day. Jeffrey would have been upset. I'm horrified." Sure. That of course you know like and of course the JB's also involved in like Einstein Bros bagels right <laughs> like yeah. after making Einstein flee the fucking country <laughs> <laughs> and all sorts of other weird ironies about like it means this they've come around this family with all this Nazi capital is is got into all these uh, Jewish traditionally businesses after after well they went to failing where the money to make was. bagels with pure Aryan classical <laughs> mechanics <laughs> they realized maybe we should incorporate <laughs> these degenerate science new scientific ideas into our bagel making and heisenberg was like you know what i was actually secretly trying to hold back german bagel making you just you find the guy who lived through the nazi period and he's like the worst deprivation was when you wanted to get a good bagel <laughs> real cratering after 1933 uh. um but so I guess I know we've, we've gone a little long here, but just to kind of close out, we'll we'll see what the uh, the four Rymans, the, the billionaires, we'll see what actually comes out about them whenever this book is published. The four horsemen of the apocalypse yes. go on. But I think we'll return to this subject when we deal with kind of other German uh, hereditary billionaires, because, you know, in addition to IG Farben having a factory near Auschwitz III, um, Siemens and Krupp also had factories near Auschwitz III. And this is like... Uh, Life expectancy there was three to four months, wow. like one month if you were working in the mines. And just one story that I want to, to tell you is that IG Farben, uh, two executives were touring their plant near Auschwitz Suite 3, two IG Farben executives with uh, their SS companions. Uh, one of the IG Farben... to a bar. <laughs> one of the IG Farben exe- uh, executives points at one of the slave Jewish workers and says, quote, this Jewish swine could work a little faster... He walks away, and then the SS beats him to death. And IG Farben executives, there was an IG Farben trial. They got like one to eight years in prison, those who were convicted. Well, These people should have been hanged. Yeah. But, of course, you know that's the way the Western German government and the Allied and American occupying powers worked was it was like, hey, slap on the wrist sentences. we got to get everybody back together because of Eastern communism. And, and this is the information we know. Right. And so the one other thing we didn't get to... I think it has to do with, like, you know, we need people who uh, know how to hold, like, places of management and kind of keep down, keep the working class. <laughs> just kind of... Yeah. yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah, well, this is reality. And um, the, the one other thing with the Ryman family that we, we only have the vague thing that, according to this initial report, they, had a, they hired and kept a very cruel foreman at their chemical factory. So you can imagine anyone who wasn't... Working hard Wait, enough was. Are you ju- telling me there was a cruel foreman at Auschwitz three? <laughs> no, I'm talking about the one in the Ruhr, the Ruhr Valley. <laughs> oh, wait, where? Yeah, <laughs> the Ruhr Valley. <laughs> but the point is, you know, these these Eastern workers were given starvation rations, and the SS even looked at that and they said, like, let's you know beat the shit out of them so they'll work harder. And then they even determined, oh, they're just not working hard enough because they're starving to death. Yeah. So you know, you can only imagine what. Exactly when they don't on. need motivation, they need nutrition. How many people were just worked to death, literally to death, to make the Ryman family billionaires? How many people were raped, killed, enslaved? And, and all these people, you know, if they didn't die during the war, uh, they barely received any recompensation. The German government finally got around to that in the year like 2000. They paid out a little bit of money to survivors, but incidentally, you know. 11 million. <laughs> but yes, we will, uh, See, yeah, but where else can you get a bagel with sprinkles on it? 
<laughs> or a donut with sprinkles. <laughs> but uh, congratulations to Renette Ryman Haas, Wolfgang Ryman, Matthias Ryman Anderson, Stephen Ryman Anderson, who will each be donating uh, a couple million of their three, four to five billion fortune to a to-be-determined charity right, right. to what make up for, for how they got their capital and uh, <laughs> why get why they get to live on the top of the societal p- uh, pyramid today. All right. Anything else? Yeah. Anything else we didn't get to on the Ryman's? Uh, well, I got, we got this drop. <laughs> and with that, yeah. this has been Grubstakers. I'm Yogi Polywall. Steve Jeffers. Oh, I'm Sean McCarthy. And also, and I'm Andy Palmer, original Osler. <laughs> Later. All right, bye. Someone do an intro right now. News for Tuesday, March 26, 2019. Over the years, I love eating Krispy Kreme donuts, but I'm very shocked and sad that the ancestors of the current owners of Krispy Kreme donuts and Panera Bread have omitted the ties to the dreadful Nazis. This is very sickening and sad. In the wars of Marvin Gaye, the late great Marvin Gaye, was going on. The 2010s have been my horrible decade and I can't wait for this damn decade to end for good. I don't like bigotry. I don't like hate. I don't like white supremacy. I don't like racism. I condemn them. The world is supposed to be about diversity, so as the United States of America. I've lost my respect for Krispy Kreme donuts after learning the news that the current owners, the ancestors of the current owners, have ties to the Nazis. Please. Boycott Krispy Kreme donuts and boycott Panera Bread. This is a PR nightmare, a public relations nightmare that won't go away anytime soon. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, please don't shoot the message. What's your reactions? I'm Spencer Carter. Oh, you haven't been listening to Allied propaganda. Of course, they're going to say we're the bad guys. But they didn't get to design our uniforms. And their symbols are all, you know, quite nice. Stars, stripes, lions, sickles. What's so good about a sickle? Well, nothing. And obviously, if there's one thing we've learned in the last thousand miles of retreat, is that Russian agriculture is in dire need of mechanization. Are we the baddies? (laughs) 